know that over the past few weeks, or really since the start of the year, we've been uh, doing a series of talks uh, through a particular section of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, that, uh, by Gospel, I mean a kind of one of the biographies of Jesus' life that you find in the Bible. And this is Matthew's take uh, on Jesus' life. And the series is called uh, The Unexpected King. Uh, so if you were to go home tonight and read through all of Matthew's Gospel, uh, it would take you a little while, but it's probably better than uh, most things that are on TV tonight. I encourage you to do that. Uh, so if you were to do that, uh, you would discover that Matthew's Gospel really answers two big questions. Uh, the first half of Matthew's Gospel answers the question, who is Jesus? That's, a big, that's an important question to ask. Uh, and Matthew's answer to that question is that Jesus is the king in God's kingdom. Uh, so the, the first half of Matthew's Gospel uh, really climaxes with the passage that Adam preached on last week, if you were here, uh, and Jesus asked his disciples in this passage, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Uh, and Peter answers on behalf of the disciples, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I don't know, maybe you've heard that language of Messiah before. Uh, mostly, if it's not used in a church these days, it's probably used in the context of some sporting team uh, that's looking for the Messiah that's finally going to rescue them from the doldrums. That's from a Melbourne supporter. So I'm familiar with uh, many messiahs, false messiahs coming. Anyway, um, so uh, this is, uh, but this is the true deal, Messiah. Uh, Jesus, uh, yeah, uh, Jesus is saying, uh, Peter kind of nails it. He says, you are the Messiah, which is to say you are the Christ, Jesus Christ. You are God's chosen and anointed king, uh, the one who's been promised to come uh, and rescue God's people, establish and rule over God's kingdom. So that's the first half of Matthew's gospel. If you read through it, there's lots of details in there. But in general, it's answering the question, who is Jesus? And, of course, that doesn't tell us uh, Jesus is the king in God's kingdom. That's the answer. Uh, but that doesn't tell us exactly how Jesus is going to go about establishing God's kingdom. What's he going to do to establish God's kingdom? And that's where the second half of Matthew's gospel comes in. Because, by and large, the second half uh, answers the question, what did Jesus come to do? Right, not that complicated. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? And if you had the passage there, if you've got it open in the, in the welcome card, you'll see that right at the start of this second half of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus answers that question and his answer is really weird. Maybe not weird uh, because you're kind of uh, soaked up 2,000 years of kind of churchiness and Christian history. But it is weird, isn't it? What did Jesus come to do? Jesus says he came to die. Jesus essentially says, you're right, I am the Messiah, I am the, the chosen and promised king in God's kingdom, uh, but you don't understand yet what I've come to do as God's king. The king must die, Jesus says. Uh, and that's why our series is called The Unexpected King, because that's quite weird. Uh, so as we look at this passage, uh, I want us to uh, answer those two big questions. They're there in the kind of little outline of what I'm going to say. The first is, what kind of king is Jesus? And the second is, what kind of followers does Jesus want? Uh, so what kind of king is Jesus? That's, that's the first question. Uh, as I just said, if you look at the first sentence there, uh, in the, in the, we call them verses. Uh, if you look at verse 21, uh, you'll see Jesus is the king who must die. He says, I must take up my cross. I'll read verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples uh, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, uh, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
That's pretty shocking. If you've taken the journey through the first 16 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is the Messiah. You'd think Messiah. You'd think he's going to come in power. He's going to come in glory. Uh, the Jews expected him to come and throw, uh, kind of overthrow the, those dirty Romans who were taking over their territory uh, and establish God's rule in that place. Why does Jesus say he must die? Uh, maybe it's because it was predicted in the Old Testament. You know, Old Testament prophets uh, said certain things about what was going to happen when this Christ-like figure was going to come. And there's some uh, validity to that. So right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus is arrested by these very same Jewish leaders uh, that are mentioned here in verse 21. Uh, And Jesus says, all of this has to happen so that the scriptures can be fulfilled. So Jesus is saying there are all sorts of things happening in his life uh, so that Old Testament predictions can be fulfilled. And so there are places in the Old Testament that talk about a Christ-like figure being rejected, uh, being oppressed, and ultimately being killed. Uh, You can look them up later on if you like. I won't refer to Isaiah 53. You can look up at the prophet Isaiah uh, a long time before Jesus was born. And and he talks about a Christ-like figure who is going to be unjustly condemned and ultimately killed. Or or Zechariah 13 talks uh, about a special shepherd king who's going to enter Jerusalem but ultimately be struck down with a fatal blow. These things were prophesied a long time before Jesus came. So the Old Testament kind of hints at this idea that this Christ-like figure must suffer and die. But it doesn't really flesh out exactly why that has to happen. We're told that it probably will happen, but why? And that's significant because in using the word must here, it's important to see Jesus isn't just saying, uh, he isn't just saying uh, that he's not sort of just predicting that he's going to die. He's saying that that's his plan. He's saying that the plan is that I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. He's kind of volunteering to die. And that's probably what offends Peter so much. You see there in verse 22, uh, Matthew says that, that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. You It's one thing for Jesus to say, look, guys, I've come to establish God's kingdom. I want you to know that I'm going to fight tooth and nail to the very end, but in the end, I'm going to die. It's one thing for Jesus to say that. It's a totally other thing for him to say, I'm planning to die. You know, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and kind of volunteering for this mission that ends in my death. Why would Jesus say that? Why must Jesus die? Why must he be killed? Well, I I think it's because the word must here points beyond this passage to a bigger theme that runs through the whole Bible. Uh, The Bible repeatedly tells us two different things about God, uh, who God is. And these two things, at least on the surface, seem to be intention. So on the one hand, uh, if you look at Exodus 34, verse 7, for example, just one verse in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, verse 7, uh, and that one verse tells us that because God is a God of justice, uh, he will always bring a just penalty when people do the wrong thing. God is not a corrupt judge. He can't just turn a blind eye to wrong things. He can't just sweep it under the carpet as if it didn't happen. God is a God of justice. There'll be a just penalty when people do the wrong thing. But the very same verse, right alongside that, says that because God is a loving God, he'll always forgive people for their sins. 
And the Old Testament repeatedly says these two different things about God. How is it that those things get resolved? That, that question's kind of left hanging at the end of the Old Testament, and the answer only comes in Jesus. The answer is that Jesus must die. That's the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross. Right? In Jesus' death on the cross, God shows himself to be just. God demonstrates his justice. Right? How you say, how is that possible? It's possible because uh, what happens when we sin against God uh, is that in a sense we're separating ourselves, cutting ourselves off from the source of all life. If you believe in God, uh, then he must be the source of all life. And if you're cutting yourself off from him, uh, the just consequence of that is death. That's been the story of the Bible from the very beginning. God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Because you're cutting yourself off from the source of all life. And on the cross, uh, God demonstrates his justice because Jesus, his son, pays that penalty in our place. That's the essence of the Christian message. Jesus must die because it's the way to demonstrate God's justice. Uh, And yet it's also the ultimate demonstration of God's love. Because in Jesus' death on the cross, God didn't take out the just penalty of, the sins, of our sins on us, but he paid that penalty himself. He bore that penalty himself. So in verse 21, we get this little glimpse of the kind of king Jesus is. Jesus is the kind of king who would lay down his life for his followers. And he does that because he knows that the only way they can be a part of a kingdom uh, of a God who is holy and just uh, is if he gives his life for these people. The only way we, uh, in all our sins and imperfections, can be a part of this kingdom uh, is if Jesus pays the cost in our place on the cross. So that's why Jesus must die. In verse 22, I said before, Uh, Felix is enjoying it less. Uh, In verse 22, uh, Peter's shocked. We talked about that. He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And verse 23, uh, Jesus responds. He he rebukes Peter. If you look at those words, uh, words in verse 23, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the the, uh, concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, it's important not to skip over that. Uh, You might think that's a little bit harsh. Sure, uh, Peter hasn't quite got it right. He's just had a climactic moment. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He really hit a home run there just a few verses before. And now he just hasn't quite nailed it. And Jesus calls him Satan. That sort of feels a little bit over the top. And yet we've got to remember what, in the story of Matthew's Gospel, what Satan, I guess how Satan tempted Jesus back in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 9, uh, the, 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 the uh, passage says that Satan came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, all of this I will give you, right? this glorious kingdom, all these kingdoms of the world, all of this I will give you, uh, if only you will bow down and worship me. So you see the suggestion of Satan. The suggestion is that Jesus can establish a kingdom for himself without suffering and dying. He can have a glorious crown without needing to die on a cross. And in that sense, maybe you can see how Peter and Satan are on the same page. You know, they're kind of singing from the same songbook. 
are because, Jesus, because they are both kind of suggesting to Jesus, never. You're God's king. You're never going to die. You can establish God's kingdom uh, without dying on the cross. So that's why Jesus rebukes Peter here. He says your whole mindset's kind of more in line with what Satan's take on things is rather than uh, with what God's perspective on things is. And in some ways, I think that's a little bit of a rebuke to us as well, maybe a bit of a warning to us uh, in at least three ways. The first is uh, that uh, we should be careful about presuming to tell God what to do. If I were God, I'd do things this way. We should be careful about that. Isaiah 55 says God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. As human beings, we've got a very limited perspective. Our understanding is limited. So we're very careful about presuming to tell God what to do. That's the first thing. Second, I think Jesus' rebuke of Peter here is a bit of a warning to us if our notions of greatness and power are incompatible with suffering and weakness. That's Peter's problem, isn't it? It's inconceivable for him that a glorious and powerful king would suffer and die. He just can't understand that. And that's a mindset that's not that uncommon today. Plenty of people assume that life is really mostly about maximising pleasure before you die and minimising pain. So in that kind of mindset, within that worldview, it's pretty hard to see uh, how anything good could really come out of suffering or anything powerful can come out of weakness. Christianity is a little bit countercultural in that way. Right at the heart of Christianity uh, is this truth that God brings powerful good out of suffering and weakness. I must say, those, uh, many of you know that I have this uh, vision impairment, which means that uh, in a lot of ways I'm progressively getting more and more conscious of my weakness. Uh, having to depend on people all the more. I'm having to be humbled in various ways. This is a great encouragement to me. Maybe it's an encouragement to you that God displays his power in the midst of weakness. He displays his glory in the midst of suffering. Just as he did when Jesus died on the cross. And finally, this rebuke here of Jesus to Peter is a bit of a warning for us if we think that Jesus didn't have to die for us. I think most people know that they're not perfect. If you're pressed, you know, most people think, I've got some stuff to work on. But we usually think, yeah, sure, I'm not perfect, but I can sort myself out. You know, kind of a lifelong self-improvement project. I can clean myself up. I can save myself. Uh, sure, I, I might not be able to do it all by myself. I, I might need to get a doctor or, or a psychiatrist or some other form of, of therapy, whatever it is. I'm not knocking those things. But the, the basic message is, uh, sure, uh, sure, I'm not perfect, but I don't need someone to save me. Uh, I certainly don't need Jesus to die for me. But Christianity makes the radical claim that that we're so sort of broken and messed up and sinful that Jesus must die for us. He had to die. There was no other way for us to be a part of God's kingdom and enjoy heaven, as Di was describing earlier. So we should be very careful about echoing the words of Peter. Never, Jesus! You would never have to die for me. Maybe for other people, sure, but not for me. 
Uh, so what kind of king is Jesus? He's the kind of king who must die. He, he must take up his cross. What, what kind of followers does he want? Uh, this is uh, verses 24 to 26. And it's probably not surprising that if you're following Jesus, you have to follow in his footsteps. Jesus says his followers uh, also must die. They must take up their cross. Uh, in verse 24, after Jesus rebukes Peter, he gathers his disciples together. He wants them to know what does it look like to follow him. Uh, and he says, verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus has to die. He must take up his cross. And Jesus' followers must die. Uh, they must take up their cross. And incidentally, if you just kind of take a little side note with me, I think this is a pretty big tick. Jesus' words right here is a pretty big tick uh, for just how trustworthy Matthew's account is. Uh, if you think about it, this is not exactly a masterful recruiting strategy from Jesus. You know, he goes away and he's like, that. the end game is I want millions, billions of people following me around the world. And so what's the best pitch I can come up with? You know, well, what's the best strategy? I know, I'm going to say, you've got to, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your electric chair. You've got to take up uh, your lethal injection or the firing squad. You know, that's, that's a kind of a bit of a mind-bender, but in the Roman world, that's what the cross was. In our world, it gets a bit sanitised and people wear nice jewellery and a cross around their neck, but in the Roman world, the cross was an instrument of execution. It was a very common form of capital punishment, so it was very weird of Jesus to use that as a strategy for recruiting people to follow him. Take up your cross. The only way uh, that Matthew would have recorded that in his gospel is if Jesus actually said it. You, know, you can imagine Matthew kind of being like, oh, wait a second, that's got to be in there, because that, that's totally true. Right? No one would ever make that up. Right? It's a bizarre thing. And Jesus is saying uh, that his followers have to follow in his footsteps. They must take up their cross. Not that they necessarily have to be physically crucified, though many Christians have been crucified throughout history. Uh, but they had to be willing to die, in a sense, to living for the, to themselves, living for themselves, uh, and to live their lives instead for Christ. So there's a kind of dying to self and living for Christ in taking up your cross. Uh, which leads to the, the other idea that's here, that, uh, which is that uh, Christians, uh, followers of Jesus, must deny themselves. Uh, perhaps we sometimes read that, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, and you think, well, of course, that, that's what Christians would do. Christians are all about abstinence, you know, abstaining from certain things like, I don't know, sex or alcohol or gambling or anything else that's kind of pleasurable and fun. Uh, Christians kind of are anti all of that stuff. Because Jesus says they ought to be denying themselves. But actually that's not what Jesus is talking about at all, although there might be some wisdom in abstaining from things. Jesus is saying that his followers must deny themselves in the, in the, sense, or in the sense of these pictures, actually. Let me put these pictures up. Jesus is really talking about something much more radical. So if you imagine that your life is like driving a car, Jesus is saying that becoming a follower of him is denying yourself the right to be at the steering wheel of your life, to be in control. He's saying that becoming a follower of him means that Jesus calls the shots, not you calling the shots. Why would you do that? But Because you trust that Jesus knows his world, world that he made better than you, 
So it'd actually be far better off if you gave him the controls rather than you. And let's face it, when we're in control, we're not doing that good a job. The world and your life, is not, it's not as though it's going perfectly under your control. So maybe you ought to give a crack at Jesus. Or, or the next picture uh, is uh, these kids uh, fighting with their Christmas cracker crowns on. Uh, this is really a picture of our world. All of us, in a sense, have our own little Christmas cracker crown on, utterly convinced that we ought to be the king of our domain uh, and that the world is a, bit, a good place if we all go around as, as little kings. Uh, but actually choosing, denying yourself and choosing to follow Jesus is saying, I take off my little Christmas cracker crown and I acknowledge that life works better when Jesus is king. Uh, that more freedom and more life and more purpose and meaning and satisfaction uh, is to be found in surrendering to Jesus as king. That's what it means to deny yourself. It's denying yourself, in a sense, uh, the right uh, to complete autonomy. You know, our society is very excited about autonomy. Uh, the, the words autonomy, that comes from uh, auto is self, uh, the Greek word for self, and nomos is rule. Uh, and so we want complete self-rule. We want to be able to call the shots over everything. But the Bible actually says that it's, we're far better off to have Jesus rule. That brings more life and freedom and meaning and purpose. Uh, so you deny yourself the right to have complete autonomy and you surrender your life to Jesus. That's what he's saying. You take up your cross and you deny yourself. Uh, third, he says you must be willing to lose your life. Once again, interesting recruiting strategy. Right? Lose your life. Verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life, uh, Jesus says, will lose it. Uh, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, Jesus says. Right? It's possible, spiritually speaking, to live your life in a way that you're trying to save yourself. And Jesus says if you do that, uh, in the end you'll lose your life. So it, maybe it's important to ask, uh, what does it look like to try to save your own life? I want to suggest two different ways. Generally speaking, two different ways that you might try uh, to save your own life. Uh, they're there in the, the little welcome card, uh, following your heart or following your rules, your principles. Those are two different ways we might do that rather than following Jesus. So on the one hand, uh, you might try to uh, kind of save your life uh, by following your heart. So you're going to like say, I hear all this stuff about Jesus, you reject all that rubbish about following Jesus uh, because you think that there's more freedom and life and, and satisfaction to be found in just pursuing the desires of your heart, being true to yourself. Just following wherever your heart's desires take you. And so you, in a sense, you start turning uh, someone or something else or perhaps many things uh, into a bit of a, a functional saviour. A Jesus substitute, if you like. Uh, maybe it's love and relationships. Right? You're kind of convinced that uh, if you can just find that perfect relationship with someone who really loves you as you are, uh, then you'll find life, as Jesus terms it here. True life, satisfying life. Or maybe intelligence is the thing for you. It's kind of all about academic achievement. You can just kind of graduate from uni or get a PhD or be smarter than my brother or sister. You know, then, I'll, then I'll have made it, I'll, I'll have found life. Or, or maybe it's money and possessions. You know, if I can just get that promotion, then I'd have enough money to, to buy the dream house, enough money to, to um, buy that car that I've always had my heart set on. 
Is it somehow accumulating wealth and possessions is the key to true life? Or maybe it's health and fitness. You give yourself to to a quest of personal fitness. That's a good thing. I I should do it more. But you you kind of think, if I can just run that little bit faster, if I can just lift heavier, if I can just kind of fight better, then then I'll have made it. I'll have found true life. Jesus says, if you live your life like this, if you you try to find true life, save your life, uh, by following the desires of your heart, ultimately you will lose your life. What does he mean by that? I think he means that the very things that you try to grab hold of will just always slip through your grasp. You pursue happiness through these things, but it's just never quite there. You pursue satisfaction through these things, but it's just like, ah, ah, nearly got it, but then it got away. You You pursue life, but you just can't find life. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 25. In verse 26, Jesus comes at the same idea from a different angle. Uh, He basically says, sure, if you follow your heart and pursue uh, all the the kind of pleasures of this world, you might gain the whole world. Let's say every possession in the world was in your house. You enjoyed everything, every pleasure under the sun. Uh, Jesus says, ultimately, it'll be no use to you because you'll forfeit your soul. You will lose your life, Jesus says. There's sort of a certain irony here that usually people who say, look, I'm going to reject Jesus to to follow the desires of my heart and pursue all the pleasures of this world, usually those people think that they're the ones who are really serious about pleasure. Not like those stickler Christians, you see. Stuck in the mud, not really experiencing life in its fullness. But I want to suggest that... that, um, that if you're following the desires of your heart, you're just not serious enough about pleasure. If you're rejecting Jesus just to do that, you're not serious enough. C.S. Lewis has a a great quote along these lines. Maybe you can picture this. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on uh, making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus is saying, if you try to save yourself merely by pursuing the pleasures of this world, by by following the desires of your heart, uh, you're, you're far too easily pleased. Sure, you might have a good life, but, th- but this world is as good as it will get for you. Right? The, the fleeting pleasures of this world you're choosing to bank on rather than the eternal pleasures that Jesus is offering. So Jesus says, uh, don't try to save yourself by following your heart. Uh, and secondly, uh, don't try to save yourself by following your rules, your, your kind of moral principles. They're, these are the people that they might look at the people who are just maybe hedonistically following their heart and think, no, that's not me. Like, I'm much more principled than that. I live my life by this particular set of fairly strict moral principles. Some of these people would consider themselves to be more progressive in their thinking. They might think they can save themselves. Maybe you think these are a bit funny examples. But, you know, they might think they can save themselves because they've got a reusable coffee cup. 
you know, they're, they're kind of eco-warrior, right? They're, they're kind of like, uh, sorry, maybe, maybe there's not there, but they're, they're going to save themselves because they're minimizing their carbon footprint. You know, every time they buy that airfare, they pay the extra $1.70 or whatever it is, right? They might think they're going to save themselves because they advocate uh, vigorously for asylum seekers or they always march in the local pride march. In some ways, you might get the message from these people that living in line with this particular set of moral principles is the path to true life. It's what's going to save you. Not just you, perhaps, but our community, our country, our world. And I'm not picking on the progressives. The conservatives are just as bad. You know, they tend to think uh, that they can save themselves by campaigning for freedom of speech, perhaps, or preserving uh, only traditional family values, that's the key, or minimising inefficient bureaucracies, or uh, opposing the climate change conspiracy because it's just going to destroy the economy. Now, really, I'm not commenting on whether those particular sets of moral principles are right or wrong. You can talk to me about that later on if you want. But my point here... It is just to be very clear that in the second half of verse 26, Jesus says the only way you can save yourself is not by following a particular set of moral principles. It's by following him. It's by being prepared to lose your life for the sake of following him. Now, in following him, it might lead you to one of those sets of moral principles or a mixture of both. But let's not think that we can save ourselves simply by kind of wedding ourselves to a particular set of moral principles, or at least that's what Jesus is saying. And this is kind of the paradox of Christianity. The first step to saving yourself, to finding true life, is giving up, trying to save yourself. Getting to that place where you say, I can't, I can't save myself. I've tried following the desires of my heart. I've tried following all the rules, whether they be religious or not, and it doesn't work. The first step is giving up, trying to save yourself. The second step uh, is trusting that only Jesus can save you. Following him's the key. And you say, well, that's incredibly exclusive. Well, it's exclusive in a sense in that it's only Jesus. But it's incredibly inclusive in that absolutely anyone can follow Jesus. We're not barring anyone. Why is it that only Jesus can save you? Well, maybe this is some slightly deep theological territory. Right, but why is it that only Jesus can save you? It's because uh, he's, fully, he's the only person, as far as I'm aware, who makes the claim to be fully God and fully human. Fully God and fully human. So, so uh, as fully human, what does that mean? It means that Jesus actually can die in the place of a human being. He can bear the punishment that we as human beings deserve for rejecting the God who made us. But as fully God, Jesus can bear that punishment not just for one human being, person for person, but for all human beings. Because all of our sins in the end are against God, although they might in a derivative sense, in a kind of lower sense, be against another person. They're ultimately against God, so God alone can forgive our sins. That's the essence of the Christian message. And God does that by absorbing the cost of forgiveness at the cross. And you say, well, why does forgiveness have to be so costly? Maybe that's a question in your mind. Why can't God just forgive people? Well, real forgiveness is always costly. 
You know, if I was to sin against you, not just in a trifling way, but a really serious way, maybe I betrayed you deeply, I, I wounded you. If that was to happen, you have a choice, don't you? You can judge me, which is to say you can make me pay the full penalty for my sins, and that would be completely right and fair, or, or you can forgive me. But forgiveness isn't cheap, right? In forgiving me, you have to absorb the cost of forgiveness. You have to absorb your desire to make me pay. You have to swallow into yourself, as it were, your anger, your bitterness, your pain. At least that's how real forgiveness works, real reconciliation. Otherwise, we're just pretending. And that's how, that's how forgiveness always works. That's, how God, that's what God does at the cross. Jesus, as fully God and fully human, takes up his cross for you, bearing the cost of forgiveness, uh, that you might find forgiveness and hope and true life in taking up your cross in following him. Well, we're getting towards the end. At the end of the passage, you see there, there's a warning and a promise. Verse 27. Uh, The warning is uh, that Jesus is coming back, he says. He's coming back, and this time he's going to come in glory, not suffering, power, not weakness. Uh, And you see there's a note that he's going to come as judge rather than as saviour primarily. And his judgment is going to be very fair. Many of us have this deep sense that the world is unjust, that people are always getting away, from, getting away with things, that punishments being administered are just not fair. Well, Jesus uh, says that uh, everyone, when he returns, is going to get what they deserve for what they've done. Right? Very fair, nothing more, nothing less. And in the context, I, I think Jesus is saying that, that uh, if you've given your life to the personal quest of trying to save yourself, then uh, when he comes back, you'll have no reward from him. This life that you've lived is as good as it gets. But if you give your life to following him, you'll receive great reward from him when he returns. Everyone gets what they deserve. If you live your life wanting nothing to do with Jesus, you'll have nothing to do with him in eternity. That seems fair. If you live your life following Jesus, you'll be with him in eternity. Seems fair. That's the, that's the warning. This, this is coming, Jesus says. But uh, the, the great encourage, uh, the great promises there in verse 28. Uh, Jesus says, "Truly I tell you, some who are standing here uh, will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom." Uh, this is a bit of a favourite verse for uh, atheists and, and people who kind of want to uh, say the Bible's full of contradictions and r- mistakes and rubbish. Because the, the idea is, well, how can Jesus say that some people who are alive there? Uh, are still, they're still going to be alive when he comes back. Like it's 2,000 years later and Jesus still hasn't come back. That's the argument. Jesus got his wires crossed. He wasn't quite in tune with the divine timetable, you see. Right, but we do have to remember that this story is followed by Matthew chapter 17. Come back next week if you want to hear more. And the story uh, in Matthew 17 is of Jesus being gloriously transformed up on a mountain. So on that mountain, Peter, James and John, right, three uh, men who are standing here listening to Jesus, they get a taste of the glory of Jesus coming in his kingdom. And Jesus is saying that in his first coming, uh, his glory is a bit hidden. And he's going to suffer and be weak and die on a cross. But in his second coming, it will be glorious. But that doesn't mean there aren't little tasters of his glory along the way. One's going to happen right after this, 
Uh, then Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. That's a pretty glorious thing. Then he's going to ascend. He's going to pour out his spirit. Those are pretty glorious things. So there are all these tasters that come before, uh, in, in the lifetime of those who are listening to him, uh, that come before the ultimate coming of Jesus in glory uh, when he comes back. Uh, maybe you think that's just some shifty thinking. Once again, I'm happy to talk about it later on. Uh, this is a wonderful promise, though. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is assuring you uh, that after he takes up his cross, he will one day take up his crown. That's the promise. Uh, so if you follow him, if you take up your cross, as he's described, one day you too will take up your crown. And that's really the heart of why you should follow Jesus. Uh, when I was uh, growing up, or maybe it was when I was a bit older, I can't remember, but we, we, certainly in the, in the Baptist church in Bendigo, they used to sing the hymn a lot, uh, The Old Rugged Cross. Uh, and the chorus of that uh, is, So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. This is weird. This is what Christians say. Cherish the cross. Woohoo! Wacko, right? Well, I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. In a sense, that's the choice that Jesus puts before people, the, the crowd that he's speaking to. This is the choice you've got. You can cling to all the trophies of this world, uh, but one day you'll have to give them up. I've been to quite a few funerals. I've never seen a coffin with a trophy cabinet built in. Right? Not many people are taking them with them. Right? You can cling to the trophies of this world, but one day you will have to give them up, or you can cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the choice. What kind of king is Jesus? He's a king who must die. He must take up his cross, but one day he'll take up a crown. And what kind of followers does Jesus want? Followers who are willing to cling to the old rugged cross uh, that one day they might exchange it for a crown. Uh, let me pray and then maybe we'll sing again or something. Uh, Father, uh, thanks for this, your word. Uh, we thank you that it does kind of speak to real things in our lives, a deep uh, quest to find a true and satisfying life that we all experience. And I pray that uh, this day we would consider the words of Jesus. I consider who he is, uh, a king who says that he must die for our sake, and that we consider what it means to follow him, uh, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to find true life and freedom and purpose and, and hope uh, in doing so. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen.